A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Stoncast with me, Dr. Alex George. This is the podcast where I go for a walk with a guest to take a little wander into their life. But this week we are celebrating a year of the Stoncast, a year. We wanted to bring you guys a special episode reflecting on our amazing guests and reliving some of the most memorable and meaningful moments on the Stoncast. I've spoken to so many people, ranging from my therapist and GP to the legendary Jacqueline Wilson, and we even helped ex-Team GB gymnast Ellie Downey exclusively announce her retirement on the Stompcast. Just a fun stat before we dive in. If you've been walking or stomping with us, we tend to do about five kilometers per guest, meaning we've stomped 260 kilometers, which is the equivalent of six marathons. I think that's pretty cool. Anyway. Let's get into the recaps. So let's start off with one of my favorite ever episodes. This was with the amazing Jacqueline, or Dame Jacqueline Wilson, as I should say. I just thought she was amazing. I was inspired by one of the books she's done, a, added to a series of The Faraway Tree. So The Faraway Tree books were, for me, my... I guess introduction into imagination is the first time I ever remember imagining. I was so young I wasn't really able to read the books myself, but I spent time with my mum in the evenings before bed. She would read some of the book to me. You know, she'd read a chapter a night or something. And it was an amazing, special time for me. Um, I spent it with my mum. We loved those books. And I will hold that time with my mum close to my heart and as a special time for the rest of my life. And I'm so grateful to have felt that imagination and gone away into that world uh, with the Faraway Tree books. And so to record an episode with someone who is rewriting a book that was so special to me, but also brought so much incredible stories and imagination and conversation started throughout my childhood, with the Tracy Beaker books and so on. It just was so special. She is an incredible person who still loves writing, who still loves stomping, and is still excited and intrigued by the world. This is my episode with Jacqueline Wilson. But I always knew I wanted to write books most. And I think by that stage, in my teens, I'd actually written two full-length children's books. And I did try one with a publisher who actually sent me a very nice letter back. They know they didn't want it for reasons X, Y, Z, but kind of in a try again, dear, sort of way. And I was a fool, complete fool. I thought, oh, they're just being kind to me because I'm young and I'm just not ever going to get a novel published. And so if there's one piece of advice, it was that don't give up, just keep trying. I think that's a powerful thing for anyone but young people, whatever stage you are in life, is, is to kind of give things a real go. I think we often see 
people and, and people will see everything that you've achieved, you know, all, all the books, and the amazing success you've had. And sometimes we perhaps forget, or in fairness, we don't see always the failures, if I might say that, or the knockbacks, or the, or oh, maybe I'll give up on this. We don't always see that. And it kind of highlights the point you said earlier on, that you can have, you know, talent and hopefully a bit of good luck, but you've got to work hard, haven't you, and keep going. You have Not give to, up. Yes. And sometimes people think that because I've written so many books, it must somehow be easy for me. I try and make my books very easy to read, but they're not actually that easy to write. Does and it get easier to write? or does no, it... no, because you worry more. And you think, Do oh, you? yes, people will think, oh God, is she repeating herself again? Or poor old girl or whatever, what's she writing this for? Um, and you, you are just as paranoid as... Does as... that sound like imposter syndrome a little bit? <laughs> totally, do totally. You, do, do, does I Jacqueline, mean... Jacqueline Wilson even have imposter syndrome sometimes? Is it <laughs> I, true? It took me, I was, I was about 40 and had published at least 20 books, m no, many more, before I dared write writer in my passport mm. because it just seemed such a, an amazing thing. Do you see the heron? Yeah. Hoping for some lunch, I believe. Yeah. They're always on the lookout, aren't they, for a bit of bite, a bite to eat. It does always amaze me, and I, and I, I love doing the stomp cars for many reasons, but also because I realise that, you know, you meet all these different people from different walks of life, and there's so much, actually, that people have in common, perhaps even more things that are in common. We worry about our friends, our family. We don't always feel... Maybe we sometimes we feel like imposters. We also, you know worry about what other people feel, think of us at times. It's, it's amazing to me, actually, that really we're all quite similar, aren't we? Even yes, if you have achieved loads that, of different That things. is what is comforting. I mean, uh, Sir Laurence Olivier, a you know, brilliant actor, apparently, if he was appearing on stage, would always have to have a bucket by the stage because we'd always be sick with nerves. Wow. Every performance. And, wow. and you think, somebody, with that huge reputation and respect, indeed, um, still gets so anxious. And I've, I've met various actors and comedians throughout my long career, and I, I won't name names, mm. but there are some incredibly gifted, talented, seemingly utterly self-assured people who go white and shake before they bounce on stage and then there they are, bright and perfect. I mean, it's... Do you think that's kind of synonymous or almost a requirement for well, being I... good at anything over a period of time? Because I guess the, the fact that you care, right? You I care. think it is that really, really caring and preparing and it's sometimes you can get away with doing things just by the seat of your pants and, and just hope for the best and it works magically. But there's always that time when it won't. And I think it, it's better to try really, really hard to do the best you possibly can. And yet, also, if for whatever reason things go wrong, I think you have to forgive yourself and think, well, it might not have been me, it might just have been a weird audience or kids that really aren't into reading, or if a book... I haven't had that many criticisms mm. of my books, if I have, it's annoying and a little bit upsetting, yeah. but you have to think, one person's opinion, that's it. Wow, I, I hope you feel the energy from that clip as to you know, how amazing that conversation was. You're now going to hear a series of clips that 
I pulled out with the team that we feel really capture moments, maybe they highlight conversations that I thought were special. And I think the opportunities for us to reflect on some of the incredible points and people that we've met and raised along the way. We're going to start with my first ever episode on the Stompcast with Vicky Patterson, who is a dear friend of mine, who I love very much, and is an amazing advocate for being vulnerable and open in life. Here's Vicky. Like, I used to think success and hard work and dedication, being whatever, I used to think that was having no rest days, no time off. I used to wear it like a badge of honour that I'd worked from nine till nine. I used to be like, haven't had a second, so sorry, absolutely exhausted. And I used to be, I used to take real pride in that. Now, I know that if you want to be a successful person, if you want to be more than that, a happy person, yeah. then rest is imperative. Like, I've now, and this is again a practice that was put to me by my life coach and something I swear by. So I number my days. And I understand that in order to, for me, who is a type A person, like in order for me to be happy, I have to have some number, some number four days. Oh, okay, so the type of day. Yeah, remember. exactly, right. yeah. I love so, this, I've never heard of this. Have you okay. not, right? No, no, I've not, I'm not, tell me. So number four days are yeah. up at five. Okay. You go and do Lorraine, yeah. or you go and do like breakfast radio, you then go straight from that to, I don't know, a photo shoot, press, then an event, then there's something else in the evening, you know? Yeah. It's chocker, it's fast paced, you're Busy on day. the whole time, yeah. It's a number four, yeah. high octane, strong. Then you have your number threes. So maybe you podcast in the morning, in the afternoon, like you go to a book launch, in the evening, you know, you have some friends around. Still, quite busy, you, it will drain your social battery, there'll be a lot of like, you're required you to think, you won't get a lot of downtime, but it's not as stressful as a day four. Yeah. Then your day twos, you're working from home, mate. Just yeah. a couple of Zooms, you maybe yeah. get a training session in. It's more chilled, there's more time for you. But these are the golden days. And these are the yeah. days that I used to hate. I didn't yeah. used to allow myself your day ones. You do fuck all. Yeah. You lie on the sofa, you walk the dog, yeah. you barely go on social media, you wear a face mask, you have a bath, you read a book, yeah. you do whatever brings you peace. And if you are going to be that best, bright, shiny version of you on your day fours, smashing it, meeting everybody, everybody loving you, you being great, then your day ones, they are imperative. And we need to allow ourselves them. And we need to stop making ourselves feel yeah. guilty for them as well. The only way to react to that clip is to say, Vicky, you're a legend. We're now going to hear a snippet of my conversation with Todd Letty. And this is a special episode for me because it kind of kick-started my journey finding out and discovering that I had ADHD. I think it really was a moment. I'd been humming and hawing, thinking about being seen for a long time and I'm so grateful to Toddler for, for helping me come to the decision that I did needed to get help and diagnosed. Have a listen. When did you get the diagnosis of or understand this is this is what I have or mm. how did that come about for you because I understand it has been later in life yeah yeah so basically when I was about I can't remember how old I was I was about 20 or something I was I was at home and I was in the shower yeah I had this feeling come on that was just unbelievable it was like this kind of like it's like the shower was pouring out kind of like the heaviest lead Okay. Um, and it was my first, I guess, massive panic attack stroke. 
I don't know if breakdown's the right word, but that anxiety that hits you where it kind of knocks you for like six. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm about to go on stage and I'm a bit nervous or oh. I've got an exam, I'm a bit nervous. Yeah, it's nah, like that bam, yeah. smash you like a train. Yeah. This is like, it's impossible to describe, right? It's like trying to describe love yeah. or, or pain. Like, it's just a mad feeling. Anyway, so that was like early 20s and that was something that kind of sent me into this place of like non-stop high anxiety from morning to night so like again i'm not a doctor and you probably know more about this but like cortisol which i don't know generally yeah, which is like absolutely the uh it's hormone right yeah that basically we need otherwise yeah we don't do anything yeah we need it, them we um, hate relationship yeah absolutely but when that, that tap is left on 24 7 at a high volume naturally <laughs> it kind of wears you down very quickly yeah. And I spent a lot of time feeling like that. And it was funny because that was what, like, hang on, what were we in now? 2022, right? Yeah. This was like 2007 or eight, I think. And anyway, got a long story short, I went to the doctors and blah, 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 but no one really nailed it quickly, mm. which is really interesting mm. because now I feel like someone would nail it in a second. Mm. So again, the progression, right? There's a change, there's a big so change. So basically that would, I feel like once you've been through that period of that type of anxiety which to be honest it made sense now when i look back but there was no obvious thing you get what i'm saying it's not like oh i'm starting uni tomorrow or you know someone passed away or it just like it just because it sounds like to me you had the you, adhd is one side anxiety yep. is another side it's closely linked they can kind of they are, you mentioned cousins earlier. Yeah, on, yeah, they're cousins. Like, so yeah. It's kind of like they often intertwine in some way. Absolutely. So let's 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 focus on ADHD from it. What what kind of like now do you recognise as being like this was my symptoms? This oh gosh, that was actually yeah. This is why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think because they are because I, I I have diagnosed with um, GAD, mm -hmm. general anxiety disorder. disorder. Yeah. Yeah, which to be honest, it only gets hectic. I don't know. It, it seems to come in like what's the word? Um, seasons okay like it's not like all time yeah like it's just there's been chapters in my life it's been so intense for so long and then i managed to get rid of it so that's like a chapter based thing yeah whereas adhd is 24 7 right and actually i thought that that was part of the anxiety thing but the mates and they all and some of the symptoms intertwine and i think like when i get into those anxious states one of the reasons i can't Oh, I really struggle to get out. It's because I just flipping hyper focus on it. I can't stop thinking about it. It's a big it, part of uh, ADHD is actually having that hyper focus yeah. around something. And then music has been a big hyper focus, a good hyper yeah, focus. That, for you. Yeah, so music is a hyper focus that um, kind of locks me into a place of re permanent reward. Yeah. So I'm always getting reward off music, whether it's making, listening, talking. It could be literally like oxygen. So that's positive, it's given me a career, it's given me a wife, it's given me kids, you know what I'm yeah. saying? But when I'm hyper-focusing on a negative, it's really destructive. Yeah. And when you're carrying all this cortisol and all this and you're concentrating on it 24-7... It's like a superheated anxiety. Oh, bruv, it's peak. Okay, next up, and linking quite a lot to what you've just heard, is my interview with Dr. Taryn Quirk. So Taryn is my therapist. We, we basically went for a walk into the therapy session together and you hear this conversation, you know, as it happened. We reflected quite heavily on my new diagnosis with ADHD. Here's a clip. I just think it's quite sad that it's taken 31 years for me to understand certain things. Yeah. And I look back on my life and 
you know, I, as a child, I really struggled to engage in classroom settings. I was actually put in um, a special needs class for a good period of time until my mum went in and said, Alex, is, Alex doesn't need to be in this environment. He does actually need to keep in the academic space, but, you know, maybe we can adjust how things are. And I don't think anyone really thought what that meant at that time mm. or what that was. They, they thought I just was a bit, like, naughty or whatever. Yeah. And then throughout the school years, I found school environments very, very challenging because I just couldn't... I don't think that form of learning was good for me. Yeah. And then when I went to university, it was the first time in my life I think I was able to excel. Yeah. So I went to a, a medical school that was very future, future thinking. So you've got traditional med schools that are sit down, watch millions of lectures, read tons of books and just sit there for hours on end. That would have just not worked for me. Probably would have failed. Whereas I went to med school that was all self-directed learning. And in fact, most lectures you can watch at home. Yeah. So I used to, rather than go to lecture, I'd watch it at home and stop and start. So I could stop and start and do other things. But I never recognised at the time that that could be ADHD. I just thought I was a bit different. Mm. So I, mean, I just think it's sad, to be honest. It is. It is. It's one of those things I think has been massively overlooked. There's a huge lack of information and awareness out there. But I think people are getting better. But it's still unfortunate cost waiting lists for, you know, everyone needing, needing the assessments. But the interesting thing, I think what you noticed, um, is that you're already reflecting on historical stuff and behaviors and the impact that it maybe have. I mean, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot to unpack. I think this is a really interesting topic to bring up. But, you know, on some, on some level now at 31, there's been three decades of not knowing information, which now you do. And I'm wondering in a way, do you, do you kind of see it as I'm almost relearning Alex in a way? Not entirely, Yeah. but there's parts of mm. you that maybe, oh, that makes sense. Now I get yeah, it. Yeah, I think, it, I think part, that's why I think part of it, part of my, my reaction has been like, I'm glad I understand. So people might ask, why did you, maybe that's a good place to start. Like why, why go now, 31? Mm -hmm. I didn't want anything. I don't want any specific treatments. I don't feel like I need it because I feel for me the way I am in terms of my attention, hyper-focusing on things and jumping onto other things, mm -hmm. for me is a superpower. Mm -hmm. Because in my life, I've, it's all lots of different pieces that I jump between. Definitely. If you ask me to sit down in a nine to six, nine to seven job, I think it would be disorder for me, or it would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. But because I built uh, a life around me that allows it to actually really work, it works for me. Yeah. So for that, I don't mind. Um, what I do think, as I say, is sad, is that I think there's so many things that I kind of... I look back and think I was probably told off for certain things that I think probably were just how I was. Yeah. Um, I think school was much tougher than it could have, should have been. It could have been different if I'd have, if I'd have understood and other people around me didn't understood and allowed me to learn the way that I felt I could learn. Yeah. I'd have actually had a much more enjoyable process at school. And yeah, I just kind of, I think what if a lot of the time. So yeah. it's odd how you make life choices sometimes that are, you don't even realize you're making choices to compensate. Mm -hmm. So I ended up being an A&E doctor. My whole life in A&E is jumping between one thing to the next to the next. One case, that case. Almost like you're trying to find organisation in chaos mm -hmm. and it worked perfectly for me and with someone that's short attention span, see a patient, bam, 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 on to the next. Yeah. Perfect. And actually I look around me and I think I found situations when it was really, really busy, maybe less stressful than some people. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because I'm kind of built in that way. But how many kids are out there that are not supported for it or for sure. not diagnosed or whatever. And I think one of the biggest things, I mean, it'll actually be really useful from your 
perspective just to explain a bit around mm -hmm. what is ADHD. But I think one of the misconceptions I understand is that, you know, about one in 10 or even, even more than that, people who have ADHD don't have that hyperactivity that you think of, like people bouncing, the kid bouncing around the room. I mean, exactly. I didn't bounce around a room. Sure. That's why I thought I don't have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's experienced differently for different people. Um, you know, you've highlighted for you, it was maybe impatience, hyperfocus, <laughs> um, impulsivity. <laughs> and when you think about like longitudinal form formulations with individuals, you're looking at historical stuff, events that would have had a significant impact that then has shaped your core beliefs and your thinking moving forward into adulthood, right? So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and that's something we can definitely tackle today at some other stage, but you're right. like. You know, um, there's also studies out there, particularly looking at people um, with ADHD. You've got heightened um, levels of empathy, resilience. Really? Is that true? Yeah. Because yeah. I think I'm an incredibly sensitive and empathetic person. God, that's what I was like, I'm very empathetic. But I think I am just, I'm such a sensitive person. So I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, social intelligence, empathy, resilience, um, and then this abundance of energy which, you know, is, is textbook you. But, you know, the impulsivity, for example, with ADHD, um, you've got these ADHD masks, this is what they call it. And um, let's just say, for instance, you were a really impulsive child at school and you're acting out and the kids are starting to like look at you and treat you differently. Even the teachers are because they don't understand it. You know, those experiences can really shape your, your experience your core belief system, your rules for living that will carry through to adulthood. So you know how Alex at five was interpreting a significant event and how others were reacting to it and, and how they might have seen or treated you differently, you then grow up to become this adult thinking, I'm different or I'm not good enough or I'm failing or what's wrong with me. I recorded this episode with my next guest, six months into going alcohol-free. And Michelle Heaton has had a really, really tough time with alcoholism, with battles with addiction. And she is the most incredible, open and amazing person. I think the whole team was moved and really inspired by her story. I've had so many messages from you all since this episode has gone out. And you know what? I get it because it really, really strikes a chord with you, doesn't it? It speaks to your soul. And whether you struggle with addiction, whether you're sober curious, whether you know someone that struggles with addiction, you know, it really, really catches you. It's an amazing conversation. Here's a part of it. It's something you said a little bit earlier that alcohol doesn't discriminate, doesn't care who you are. Yeah. Where you're from. Yeah. It doesn't Or what you've done or how exactly. amazing you are. Like it doesn't care, does it? We're from all walks of life. Um, you know, like I, re I remember going in the Priory and seeing um, this guy that came in and he was the epitome of what you thought an alcoholic was. He was in his trench coat, looked like he just walked off train spot in, smelled of alcohol, had the paper bag, had the shakes, trembling. He, he's still sober today, mm. you know. And then there was a lawyer at top of his game, absolutely smashing it in work and he couldn't stop gambling and, and paying for sex, for example. And um, he, he isn't recovered. In fact, he actually lost his life last year. Oh, um, because, well, I don't even know why. I, I'm not him, but he just couldn't find his way out of it. Mm. And it goes to show that it doesn't discriminate. You know, there's all walks of life. 
And, and unless you're willing to admit that you've got a problem, you, it's really difficult to get help. And the family around you, right, if there's anything I can say to the family, um, you know, now coming out the other side and, and what Hugh and the kids and my friends went through, you know, they spent years blaming themselves. Um, my bandmates spent years thinking maybe we should shut the band up because that's where she's drinking when she's on tour. Um, you know, my husband's worrying sick that when he brings home a bottle of wine on my birthday, he's enabling it. You know, it's not your fault, guys. Like the families who are trying to take care or worrying about their suffering, alcoholic, it isn't your fault we would drink anyway. You know, that extra bottle of birthdays or drinking on tour with the girls, that was just another place to drink. If I'm an addict, if I'm an alcoholic, I will drink anyway and I will find it no matter what. And no matter how much help you try and give somebody, they're just, if they're not ready to accept it, you're not gonna be able to get through. So if there's anybody listening with somebody who they care about who's going through this, just be patient. Let them know that you're there when they are ready and they have to be ready and willing to change in order for the change to come. If you force it too much and they try and change just for you, it will not work. It will not work, they'll go back out because unless they're doing it for themselves, and unless I was completely done at the bottom of the barrel and I was just exhausted and I needed help and I asked for help, if I said yes to rehab two years previous because my husband wanted me to, it wouldn't have worked for me. You have to be, what you're yeah, saying almost sounds like you have to be ready. Yeah. I think that's some unbelievable, unbelievably powerful advice. What would you, if you go into as we draw to a close, a part two, mm -hmm. and we're going to move and shift conversation in part three. I just wonder if you could share maybe some hope or some advice to anyone that has listened to this and goes, do you know what, I've, I feel there's something in this. I feel that I relate to this. What would you say to that person? I think if you're the one that's suffering in silence and you think you might have something, but you're not sure, visit aa.org because they've got all the questions there and the helplines, ring the helpline somebody answers it, they're manned 24 hours a day um, and the people who do service are the people who are in recovery. So you're speaking to a fellow alcoholic or addict and that's what's great about it. If you've got a loved one, visit the same place because they've got something called Al-Anon which is for the family and friends of the suffering, which is like AA but for the families and the loved ones. Um, and know that there is hope. At the end of the day, I was about to die. I couldn't stop drinking. No matter what happened, I woke up and I drank neat vodka. I was I was being sick with blood. I couldn't control my my, my, my toilet habits. I looked like I was going to die. Not only was I going to die, and I survived. And I was able to get help. And I'm still here now. And you know, I feel like I'm I'm I've never been healthier. And that's because I did the work, and I got help. Um, so it is possible. It's absolutely possible because I was just done. I was dead. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to give you a hug if that's all right. It's so powerful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's unbelievable. And, and I, as I said, I'm you no doubt nice. that helped so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Even despite the bushes and the stomping. And stuff. <laughs> Next up is a conversation with a guy who's an absolute legend, an all-round nice person who also 
basically allowed us to have a three course meal, <laughs> a lovely three course meal in his restaurant in Marlow. What an absolute legend, a great conversation and an all round inspirational chap. Here's Chef Tom Courage. I'd like to ask you one question, which I, I wonder if other people listening uh, have, a, have a similar question to ask. What happens when you get, and it's completely random what we've just been talking about, what happens when you get a Michelin star? How does that happen? Does someone like we see in the movies, do they hide in the corner? It's like a French person and it's got like, they always have like a, they have like a clock thing on the hand, a pan pocket watch. They've got, they just have that aura about them, probably smoke a cigar or something outside. Like what actually happens? No, well, you, you never know. So the Michelin inspectors, they'll come in uh, probably once a year, once every 18 months. They don't announce. They don't tell you when they're booking and they don't tell you when they've been. I have no idea. No idea. So you only know when the guide comes out every year, if you've kept it or if you've won it. So uh, when we won the first star, it used to be the guidebook would come out and it might get re-released. It might get leaked on the internet because a guidebook has gone into a bookshop somewhere yeah. and someone's taken pictures or done whatever else. So when we won the star in, uh, we opened in March 2005. And the January guy came out in 2006. I got a phone call from a chef friend who rang me up at midnight at the pub because at that point we were living above the Hunt of Flowers. And he said, have you seen the guide? And I went, no. He goes, you better go and fucking look at the internet then. And that was it. Oh my God. And we, so we found out we want to start when a, a great chef, a guy called Daniel Clifford called me and told me, yeah. which is amazing. Uh, and the second star, um, we got a letter on the morning of the Michelin Guide. And they sent a small film crew and videoed it. Wow! And but what was that highlight? What did that feel like with that when you for the especially that first Michelin, Michelin star? What did you? What does that feel like? It's just such a huge uh, a recognition of the team and the people of what you've done. Particular the second star in particular. So the first star, I'd maintain, I I'd had a star previously at somebody else's business as head chef. Um, so winning at the hand was great. Wasn't expected, particularly within that first year. Um, wow. But the second One star, year. it broke down boundaries because all of a sudden we were the first pub to win two. two yeah, stars. I read so, that. So that was a huge reflection of the team and everybody that was involved because we'd all worked very hard to just try and be better and more consistent. We didn't know we were going to get a second star. We would have loved it. But when it happened, like the whole team was so happy. It was just such a great... I suppose it's such a great kind of celebration of, of reinvestment. And by that, I don't mean money. Hmm. I mean in people, in people's lives, in, in everything that they've done, in the way that we've all kind of worked together and driven something. Yeah. So it, we, yeah, that made it magical. My next guest is so inspiring. And I really came away from this conversation feeling enlightened and I felt a sense of humanity and connection with this person, Lucy Edwards, who is blind and shares her experience, her journey, and is just so vulnerable about her life, talks about that journey of going in and accepting blindness and overcoming some of the barriers and, yeah, helping others really see that there is a way forward no matter the challenge. This is Lucy Edwards. So for me, my journey started when I was around four years old. I actually had really weird lumps and bumps on the backs of my legs mm. as a little girl. And my mom and dad couldn't get rid of them. They were really concerned that they were blistering the backs of my legs. Anyway, I went to a skin doctor and they diagnosed it as incontinency pigmenting. 
which is a really rare genetic condition that runs down the female line of my genes. Um, my mom does have IP, but she's, her eyesight is not affected. My late grandma has IP, eyesight not affected. Um, so what then happened consequently is because I got the right diagnosis, those lumps and bumps went away. And then at age eight, I went for a routine eye check and they said, oh, Mrs. Edwards, you've got to rush your daughter to eye hospital because okay. it looks like her eyes are really deteriorating. Anyway, at age 11, basically, I lost my right eye. It, the retina detached. I still oh, have wow. the eyeball, <laughs> but the insides don't work. So that's at 11, that went. And then at age 17, I became blind in my left eye due to my condition, yeah. So it was a bit of a turbulent time. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine, I mean, you know, growing up at that time, it's a hard enough time as it is. When you're facing that, and you're you know, having to kind of come to terms with, or if that's even the word, with losing your sight, that, that must have been hard, doesn't even cover it, does it? No, oh my God, it is coming to terms with it, to be honest, I think. Um, you, you have to learn how to live again. You have to learn how to be yourself again. You know, I had 17 years of being one version of myself, and then I just, overnight, just had to learn how to be blind, and I'm like, mm, there's no rule book here. Is that, <laughs> is that how you describe it? To, to you're, You've got 17 years of one life, and then there's a different version. Yeah, oh, totally. Is that how you see it? Totally. Like, mm. I've only been nine years in this current body, in my current reality, and I used to hate it. I used to tell myself all my life, I hate being blind, Lucy, I hate this version of myself. And for, I would say a good four years of being blind at the start, I just wouldn't wouldn't really come to terms with like even using the computer with my screen reader. Like I would do it, but begrudgingly. I would, you know, just beat myself up for the silliest things. You know, if I spilt something, you know, I had to learn how to pour a drink again, how to, you know, go to the toilet again, like in a, in a non-sighted way. Like I know it sounds crude, but like, Absolutely everything was ripped up for me in that well, one Well, I moment. mean, even as you're speaking, you think about every little thing. I mean, even, for example, you know, did you did you burn yourself pouring hot yeah. water and stuff? Totally. Gosh, I mean, yeah, that's... Yeah. So even pouring, making a cup of tea could be quite scary. Totally. Literally. At the could... start, yeah. Like, it's like, Alex, if I literally said to you tomorrow, I'm going to put a blindfold yeah. on you for the whole day or, like, put you in a room where you literally cannot see, you're like... What? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I quite frankly, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know you wouldn't where to know start. What to do. You just wouldn't know it. So um, it's like, you know, I think the first moment when I tried to make a cup of tea, I think I would bargain with myself and make other people do it for me. I'd, yeah. I mean, my fiance, I've been with him since I could see. I saw him before I lost my vision. So I'd be like, Ollie, could you make me a cuppa? And there's only so many times someone can make you a cuppa before then you go, oh, well, I have to do this myself. Like, I have to be able to make myself yeah. a cuppa. Next up is the mummy mum, Gemma Bird. Gemma is so awesome. She's really, really funny. And you know what? I, I really, I really got to say I learned so much. I went into this conversation thinking, look, I'm someone who's quite interested in things like finances. I, you know, I, I find business intriguing, um, you know, and I learned so much, quite frankly, you know, she just says it how it is, gives you the truth, gives you the best advice, and she's awesome. Here is Gemma Bird. Whatever your financial situation is right now, what are some good basic things that we should know and maybe some tips so people can start off just with the basics with, with their money and saving and, yeah. and approaching financial health? I think the main thing to do is always sit down and the first thing you need to do when you ask people this is I will say to them, 
what, what do you earn a month? And, you know, quite often, because it's me, they'll say, oh, I'll take home 3000 a month, just for example. I say, what goes out? Um, right, well, my mortgage, my mortgage is 1000 Um My car, yeah, I, I don't really know. And then I'll say, OK, when I'm saying what goes out, are you going to McDonald's every week? Are you having your nails done twice a week? You know, look at everything. You know, this is whether you are, as I say, on a really tight budget or you've got lots of money. But is there any money you're wasting? Look at subscriptions that you've got. Cancel subscriptions you don't need and get subscriptions that you do need. I hear a lot about cancelling them. But if you are ordering something every single solitary week from a certain supplier, maybe subscribe to them because you might save yourself money, you know. Look at absolutely everything. Have you got any patterns? Are you picking up that Starbucks every single morning on the way to work, you know? That can, that can lead to hundreds of pounds a month that you're spending. Have you got a car but it's a thousand pounds a month? and really you can't really afford it it's, it's just a money pit you need a car but you don't need a car for a thousand pounds a month look at the place you're renting if you're renting somewhere and it's a one bed and you're thinking to yourself i'm really really struggling like you said it's so expensive you're a doctor maybe looking at renting a two bed it might be another 500 pound a month but you could then charge that other student maybe 800 pound a month so then you're 300 pound a month better off because they're helping you towards the bills yeah sure so there's sort of there's ways around things there's looking at things looking at things in your home as well like making money so for example i rent my drive out um, I do it for a company, so there's insurances. But look at everything, every bit of space. Do, do you live on your own? Could, is there a spare room? Could you rent it out to students? Are you overpaying on things? It's having a look at basically everything would be my first tip. Then look at your shopping habits as well. Are you buying what you need or what you want? That's a really good thing to say. And look at things like... Before you buy anything really expensive, wait three days. Or really anything. Put it in the shopping basket, for example, on Amazon... Go and make yourself a cup of tea, wait till the morning and think to yourself, do, do I still want this? Another tip on that as well is a lot of the time the company will then send you an email and say, oh hi, you've left this in your shopping basket, if you'd like it you can have 10% off. Yes, you've just um, saved, if you really, so you're saving you really want money, you save 10%. So then you can save yourself money and then you can stop and think, because a lot of the time you'll go back and think, actually I don't really need them boots, I have got them. And looking at selling things around your home as well, it's such a big thing, like you can make so much money on that. Like if you went into every, whether it's your garage, your attic, your spare room, there's stuff you can sell. Sell the old to replace the new, I used to do that all the time. Like if I wanted a new sofa, I'd sell the old one first. And even for people that say to me, yeah, but I don't want that sofa anymore. No one's going to pay for it, anything for it. I'd be like, but then you've got to hire a van to get it taken away. It's 50 quid. So just think of everything. Put it on a Facebook marketplace saying it's free, collection. That's You're still so saving true, yourself you are a di- time and money, yeah. You're saving yourself everything. So it's looking, at, it's looking at everything. And it's looking at having and trying to enjoy life and putting things on what do you really, really want. So for me, holidays are really important because that's memories of my children. That's memories of my other half seeing the world i'm not i like the odd nice thing i'm a girl of course i like the odd nice handbag or the odd nice dress or whatever and there's nothing wrong with that but it's looking at if you do want that where can you get the best deal for it you know it's looking at absolutely everything everything i buy and do i think about it before i spend it and i think okay where can i get it from i use extensions on my computer such as honey um which saves you money every single solitary time you check out. It automatically searches the web and checks all the vouchers mm. for you. Mm. So as you're checking out, you're saving money there. So there's lots and lots of ways to sort of save and do things. And as I say, as we spoke about in the first part, and if, if you're at the situation where you can't do anything, you've cut back and you've gone through everything, then it's sitting down and it's speaking to somebody, whether that's friends, family, citizens advice, a professional, and putting a plan in place. It's, I think it's having a plan and it's always sitting down and starting to look at it is the main key where people go wrong. They think, actually, I don't really want to open that app. I don't really want to see what I've got in my bank account. It's looking at it and, and talking about it. And I think that's the first step of anything. 
So I think most people have heard of SES Who Dares Wins and a lot of you have heard of the process of like SES selection. Now, it's hard for any of us to imagine what it might be like, but the show kind of gives you a bit of a glimpse that is pretty tough. Well, Billy Billingham joined me. Um, he is an ex-SES soldier. He's on the show. He took me for a walk. Um, we basically climbed a mountain in the stormy rain and everyone was falling over, apart from Charlie. Producer Charlie managed to keep her feet and actually Abby as well. I stacked it about three times. One of those times, which you didn't hear because it was cut out of the edit, I fell over and I actually dislocated my right shoulder. It popped out and I managed to roll over and relocate it. Um, there's no way of me explaining audio-wise how I did that, but I did. And I carried on with the episode. So I'm kind of giving myself a pat on the back because I did about 40 minutes with a numb arm. It was an interesting experience. We definitely learned from it that we don't do such kind of stomps in the future. Can I also say though that Billy did slip over a few times as well. It wasn't just me. Anyway, it was an awesome combo. Billy's a legend. You can hear some outtakes of me falling over. Oops. This yeah. is real like stomping. This is why I, I do the... We call it cross grain. Yeah. Don't use the tracks. In the regiment, you're never allowed to use tracks. Yeah. You set your own path, your own destiny. You've got to choose your own direction and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and the real reason, tactically, because people ambush tracks. They expect people to be on tracks. They don't expect you to come over. See, the wind's gone now. We're out of it. So, they, so people, what, the enemy would kind of expect yeah. you to go that way? or Ta Tactical reasons. And all this stemmed really from the jungle days, training in the jungle. Not to use tracks because people ambush tracks they sit off and wait for because we are humans are naturally lazy we will take a shortcut whoa <laughs> take the source hang and you gotta together boom yeah SAS what I forgot to tell you was there's a sniper out there oh, no. <laughs> you okay mate yeah, you're right. 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 right you're right yeah yeah I'm sure right. yeah caught a shoulder a bit I, I told you I should have brought the bloody wellies sorry mate no don't worry don't apologise we'll, we'll drop down into this, into this no, dip no it's fine don't worry Oh, why didn't so, you catch it? <laughs> I caught my shoulder. That's right. So you're talking about senses. So there you are, guys, the Stomcast. There's my prop, proper first for Karen, proper first landing, isn't it? <laughs> so we're doing, guys, we do this properly. We go stomping. Yeah. We're not doing podcasts in warm, cosy rooms. We're doing it properly. When you joined the forces, did you think you'd be an author? No. <laughs> Jeez. Mate, honestly, that. How has that been? That's good, aren't it? That's been... incredible. You're th you've had, you, so, so you wrote, you wrote fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And your, is one of them the autobiography? I've got an autobiography and two novels. So. Amazing, and fictional writing as well. It's just. Yeah, I'll tell you what, mate, that's for me, I guess, has been very therapeutic. Yeah. Because the, the novels are based on the military career I can't really talk about. But, whoa, How man down, <laughs> sniper! Another time. You're again. the same sniper, look. Um, See? Down again, you, you guys. Abby, are you, are you deliberately recording this to make sure that if I slip, you're going to catch me on this final? Yeah, work? make sure you do, please. I'm going to sign out this very special episode just saying thank you so much for all of your support. It really means so much to me. I am so grateful. I am present and grateful that I'm able to do this. I love this podcasting community so much. I hope you can feel that in my voice. I hope you can feel that I mean that. I'm so grateful for you. Please do uh, remember to subscribe to Behind the Stomp to support the Stompcast, allow us to keep making episodes, uh, get extra content as well, and do leave an Apple or Spotify review, it helps us. And now, because I cannot leave you go without Health Fact of the Week, here it is. This one is a bit special because this is a special. Bananas 
are radioactive. Bananas contain potassium, and since potassium decays, that makes the yellow fruit slightly radioactive. But don't worry, you'd need to eat 10 million bananas in one sitting to die of banana-induced radiation poisoning. Good news, because I love bananas. Right, everyone, a final thank you and goodbye from me. Let's do another year of stomping. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.